As I said in episode 900, my update about dropping this podcast back to one a week for a while for health reasons, I'm going to be sharing brand new episodes only on Mondays for a while. I'm going to use my usual Wednesday and Friday slots to reshare some excellent older episodes. What follows is one of those interviews. I mean, this whole myth that he is somehow conservative or only in the middle, I always say to people, here's a guy as vice president who, when questioned about same-sex marriage, said the only criteria for who you marry ought to be who you love. At that time, that was incredibly progressive and controversial, but the way he did it all of a sudden made people say, yeah, that's right. That ought to be the criteria. I've seen that kind of enthusiasm in Joe Biden over the years, and it's infectious. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. In this episode, I catch up again with Joe Slade White, the longtime Democratic media consultant. Joe is now working on a memoir about his years in politics. You should listen to his earlier interview with me for more on his biography, which includes being media consultant to Joe Biden for 25 years. We talked about his observations about the 2020 campaign, among other things. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with the Democratic media consultant, Joe Slade White. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. What is your philosophy on what campaign advisors should say and not say about a campaign like this one? Well, I'm very old-fashioned. I am horrified sometimes by campaign advisors who want to take credit for everything, and it's as if the candidate didn't exist. Um, And also, a really bad habit uh, that I've noticed, I didn't notice it in this election, but campaign consultants who before the election will start distancing themselves. Yeah. It's not my fault we lost. Yeah, exactly. Even before, you know, and I think that's totally unethical. It bothers me whether it's unethical or not. Um, So, I mean, I come from the old school that I don't ever want to appear uh, in publicity. I'm somewhat famous for that or infamous. I don't like seeing my name in the newspapers. I want to see my candidate's name in the newspapers. And that doesn't mean I'm not effective in advising or, you know, uh, doing my job. But my job is not to, you know, get publicity for myself. What was your role in this campaign, in the Biden 2020 campaign? So my role was really to advise. And I talked with, you know, the campaign and with Valerie, his sister, who I'm close to, obviously, because she worked with me. You know, that was pretty much my role. I really do not want to exaggerate my role. Joe Biden's been a client since 1995. I've been with him for 25 years, and I know them, and I, you know, know the people involved in the campaign. I feel, you know, very comfortable (laughs) with my role, but it was not the role I usually have in terms of producing ads. Do you feel like you were part of the campaign to the extent you wanted to be? I know that I have Joe Biden's respect. It's mutual. But my role is usually to write scripts and create ads. I just wasn't able to do that because of the circumstances. But I watched it closely. Did you think of this as a well-run campaign? What do you think its strengths and weaknesses were? I do think it was a well-run campaign. 
under the circumstances because there were several circumstances that troubled me that were not in the control of the campaign. One was it's very hard to gauge and be strategic against a persona of Donald Trump. He is so dominant in terms of people's feelings, emotions, thinking, that one of the phenomena that I was troubled by was when I would look at social media, for example, um, it was filled with Democrats who were outraged about Donald Trump. I mean, every day he would say something horrible and everybody would jump 10 feet in the air and, and condemn him and talk about him. And, and I thought to myself, I don't think people realize that so long as we are talking about Donald Trump, we are not talking about Joe Biden. I don't think the news media or, in fact, I, I'm not exactly sure, understood how that dynamic uh, could hold back Joe Biden. I mean, these same people who were going to vote for Joe Biden were doing nothing but talking about Donald Trump. And I think that that was important. The other phenomenon that I think was interesting was turnout. I don't think we've examined it totally, though it's been written about. The Republican turnout, we call it the Trump turnout, but it was really Republican turnout, was far more than people anticipated. And I think really had an effect on, on the campaign. Though, again, I mean, the whole misunderstanding by many campaigns about the role of the Electoral College is amazing to me. I mean, it's been around since the Constitution, and yet we constantly are, you know, talking about, well, we won the popular vote. I mean, Al Gore won the popular vote but lost to, you know, Bush, and Hillary won the popular vote but lost. And I think it's justified to talk about how enormous uh, the uh, Biden versus Trump popular vote margin was. But I think one of the things that resulted in Joe Biden winning, and I do give the campaign credit for this, uh, is that they knew where they had to get some votes. And I don't think they were entirely fooled, as many campaigns were, that you know the margin was going to be more than it was. I mean, Michigan alone, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, they really went about winning those because they knew if, as in 2016, they lost them, and as we knew, given all the post-election craziness, they would have lost. It's kind of amazing to me that, you know, uh, people don't understand that. And I saw that also in terms of during the campaign, their commitment to getting the best people in those states, uh, to allocating resources and his time in those states. Uh, you know, it's famous that Hillary never went to Wisconsin. That campaign seemingly ignored it. And then you look at Al Gore's campaign, um, and Al Gore lost Tennessee, his home state, the state that had elected him to the U.S. Senate. Had he won Tennessee, Florida would have been irrelevant. He would have been elected president. When you talked about Trump's persona being a challenge, there's a lot to that. Like, I would watch parts of rallies of his, he was out of the bounds of normal campaigning by so much. You would hear him saying, Biden is going to kill your social security and Medicare, right? Or things that are just completely opposite of the commitment of the Democratic Party and the candidate. I mean, how do you campaign against a guy who just is willing to lie and loudly all the time? That wasn't anything new. From the moment he was president of the United States, he was doing that. I mean, it was more extreme when he was in front of his own rallies, but not by so much. And the dynamic was very much the same. And it's very, very hard. I think my philosophy generally is to ignore that. I mean, I know that seems crazy because he's lying, he's exaggerating, he's saying outrageous things. But again, that's almost part of the Trump strategy. 
is that he knows that if he, you know, if you start talking about what he's saying, it's it's on his terms. And he may be wrong, he may be, et cetera. But no, all of a sudden you're responding to him instead of, you know, taking your own campaign and, and highlighting it. I always called it, while he was president, I called it the Houdini effect. And uh, the famous magician Houdini was once quoted as saying, if you allow me to fire a pistol off into the air on the right side of the stage in the theater, I can bring an elephant out onto the left side of the stage and nobody in the audience will see it. I always thought that a lot of his statements were firing the gun off into the air, that so long as you were preoccupied by that gunshot, he was doing all kinds of things, including in the election, the turnout uh, apparatus that was, you know, I think unseen, even though it could have been predicted. It's hard to know, but do you think that turnout came from the apparatus, the efforts on the ground, the reach outs, the list building, or do you think it came from the communications from Trump himself revving people up, making them think that the end of the world would come if he didn't win? It's a combination. But I think that too much credit was given to that latter part, that people were reacting. Uh, There's an element of that, and I think it's important to examine that when uh, someone is, you know, in your mind, hatefully attacking the person you like, meaning Trump voters liking Trump, it is a motivation. Two factors in terms of the apparatus. Uh, one was that the Republicans, well, starting, interestingly enough, in 2002, began to invest in turnout. And I'm old enough to remember that one of the oldest cliches was that Republicans didn't do turnout. That Republican voters would turn out no matter what, and that it was Democrats who had to turn out its vote, uh, especially in off-year elections and, and even in presidential elections, which is one of the reasons why there's so many famous field people in the Democratic Party. Um, you get, you've got to get your vote out. Republicans just sort of counted on Republican voters turning out. One of the factors was the 2000 election. I mean, the Republicans realized they very nearly lost. I mean, they should have lost, in a sense, as, as I pointed out, in terms of Tennessee and Florida. And I kind of imagined them saying in some meeting, by God, we're not going to let that happen again. And the one thing, you know, we have such a financial advantage. The one thing we've never invested in is turnout. I know several of the Republican consultants who are really experts at that. In 2002, there was about a six to seven point surge in Republican votes. And as a result of the turnout, I mean, everybody was mystified. And to some extent, it was polling problem. And there's a parallel between 2002 and 2020 in terms of polling uh, mistakes. But several of the uh, Democratic U.S. Senate candidates um, who went into the election with what appeared to be very safe two-point leads, three-point leads, ended up losing by two or three points. And someone said to me, I was doing a Michigan governor's race for Jennifer Granholm, her first race, and we went into that election with a nine-point lead and ended up with only a four-point election victory. And everybody was going, what the hell happened? And I said, it was turnout. There wasn't any other factor that I could figure out. And somebody said, well, how do you win an election if there's the seven-point Republican surge at the end? I said, well, it's very simple. You have to have an eight- or nine-point lead. And we did. And she won. Um, And that is part of uh, what happened. Plus, I think I'm trying to figure out right now all those Senate races where all the polling is now being criticized, and sometimes very justifiably, the Senate candidates who were supposed to win and didn't. I believe that the Republicans, understandably and 
intelligently that we can't afford to lose all these Senate races. And they had apparatus to, you know, do great turnout uh, in those states. And then all of a sudden, uh, senators who everybody thought might lose, like Collins and Maine, et cetera, were winning. And not, not by just a little bit. They were winning substantially. Um, and I think that that also helped because those people who were turned out also, you know, voted for Trump. And we all know, I mean, he, he had a larger vote total than he did when he won the presidency. Joe Biden just had more and more intelligently had the right states. The strategy that it took to focus on the battleground states, I think to some extent seems to have involved, you know, winning the suburbs, winning white voters in the suburbs. That seems to have been really important. And the reach out to people who were typically Republican voters, the the groups like Lincoln Project and Republican voters for Trump and sort of making it safe to vote against Trump at the top of the ticket, that seemed to help Biden, but it, those Republicans may have voted down the down ballot for Republicans. Do you think that campaign strategy hurt down ballot? In our lives and campaigns, um, I really believe that each campaign is on its own. <laughs> I mean, it really, I don't think that there was any intention, obviously, on the Biden campaign to turn out Republicans. And they would have been crazy not to have appealed to suburban Republican votes. One of the factors I always felt in uh, Hillary's loss was that there were a large number of Republican voters who, and, and there have been studies even, that, you know, voters who didn't like Trump and didn't like Hillary. And that's largely Republican voters. Suburban, college-educated women voted for Trump. That was one study that I thought was fascinating because I think that a lot of Republican voters in 2016 didn't particularly like Trump. Um, he had his base. He had people who loved him. But the suburban Republican voters, college educated, didn't care for him very much, but they hated Hillary Clinton. And they really disliked the idea, as Republican voters would, of the Clintons, plural, taking over the White House again. And we saw that over and over again. I mean, Michigan, for example, uh, a state that one almost has to try hard to lose as a Democratic presidential candidate. Possibly Dukakis was the last Democratic presidential candidate who ever lost Michigan. And he won, and she lost. And that was a big factor, obviously, in Wisconsin and you know all of the battleground states, as you point out. And I think that that was one of the things that was clear is that people who weren't, still weren't sure about Trump voted, were able to vote for Biden, you know, and they, and yes, they're Republicans. So they, you know, by nature went down the ballot and voted for Republican candidates. But I, I don't think that that's Biden's fault. I think that if you're running a campaign that you can lose, or in fact, by numbers should lose, you've got to have a strategy on your own as a Senate candidate to win those people. How much do you think the example of the narrow loss in 2016 sort of focused the mind on the strategy of 2020? Well, it should have, and I, I know for a fact that it was in terms of the thinking um, about the you know resources and, and how to put the numbers together. So, yes, it did. Uh, but I think that it should have no matter what anyway. I mean, I think that it wasn't that all of a sudden the Biden campaign figured out the Electoral College. Um, I think it was more a fact that the Hillary campaign didn't really anticipate what could happen. There was lots of talk that Florida was going to go for Biden. No, that wasn't going to happen. That Texas might go for Biden. No, that wasn't going to happen. But look at what happened in Arizona. Arizona, for my lifetime, um, has been a Republican state, and demographics and all kinds of things are changing. But you had an incredibly strong, good, well-run U.S. Senate campaign who won. And I think that that really helped. I think Biden helped him, and he helped uh, Biden. 
And I think that there's a lesson there. He he won that campaign with a really well run Senate cam, you know, strategy and and tactics. You've been at this a long time. You mentioned 25 years or so with Biden and a lot more time consulting before that. Did you learn new things this cycle? That's a really good question. Can you teach old dogs new tricks? I've told people that if were I given the opportunity to erect a statue uh, across the street from the Democratic National Headquarters in Washington, um, it would be of a college-educated suburban Republican woman. Um, that that's been the secret of virtually every upset or difficult or close campaign I've ever won. They're Republicans, so they are going to vote Republican by nature. If nothing else happens, they are going to vote for the Republican, whether it's a governor, senator, or presidential. And if you can turn them around, and I think the Biden campaign did, and I know I've done it in the past, the Republicans don't see it coming, usually. They kind of count on them. And uh, and a narrow victory, that can make a big difference. I think that that was confirmed this time. I mean, people were kind of surprised at how well Joe Biden did in the suburbs. I wasn't terribly. Um, I, I thought that that was part of the strategy and, and that they did a good job of that. And I think that to some extent, uh, the tactic that Trump employed of saying outrageous things and being outrageous, you know, raised doubts among that electorate. That strategy of aiming at the person you want to build a statue to is controversial, I think, in in the party. There's there's a lot of people who advocate for base first or, you know, registering and getting out more people that are on the left or in minority groups rather than reaching into the middle. What's your thoughts about that? It often is not necessarily ideological. Um, the strategy and tactics that I used to win that statue over. And absolutely, this election also taught us, as I think we saw in Georgia, though I think it's somewhat exaggerated in Georgia, but that registering our base and turning them out is still critical. I mean, we wouldn't have won this campaign, I don't think, if we had not had really good people turning people out. I know the people in Michigan, because I've worked in Michigan so often. The people who were in charge of turnout in Michigan are really, really good. And when I heard that they were being hired to do it, I I congratulated the campaign. So turnout of the base is still critical. We would have lost had we not turned out that base, had we not registered. And that's part of the secret of the future too, is that uh, the turnout, the registration in Georgia um, was really, really critical. Um, Although again, in Georgia, Joe Biden certainly got a lot of votes out of the suburbs that people were surprised about. And I don't think that goes against you know, what is kind of controversial right now about the left side of the party. And Joe Biden's not a conservative. He's a progressive. And and I think that we exaggerate that. Uh, the, uh, the divisions, I think sometimes they're made up. No, I don't think it's a choice. I think it's an and. I think it's, a, you know, it's not a either or, it's plus. Do you think typically voters are ideological? Well, I'm sorry, I interrupted. Go ahead. No, I mean, I, th- I think that, that's your quick response, right? That the mass of voters are not too ideological. They seem to be highly partisan right now, broadly, but that's different. Well, the divisions um, psychologically are strong. You know, if, if they feel like, you know, they're being ignored, but that's been going on for a very long time. The Republicans have exploited that. You know, we forget that we talk about Reagan Democrats. He had lots of union voters voting for Ronald Reagan, and that was unheard of and surprising to Democrats. It's not supposed to happen. People vote, it's simplistic, but I think it's true. People vote for two reasons. They vote for their self-interest, 
which is perfectly justifiable, and they vote based on their feelings. And I think that the only time that they vote against their feelings, meaning their kind of emotional connection or feelings about a candidate or candidates, is when their self-interest is overwhelmingly threatened or at stake. And the only time they vote against their self-interest, so to speak, meaning in a surprising way, is when their feelings are overwhelmed. And they really just, you know, either really strongly believe in someone or are, are very, very much turned off and frightened by someone. I don't ever approach voters from either a partisan or an ideological point of view. When I am able to get that statue to vote for a Democrat, it often is, you know, a matter of me pointing out that the Republican is not such a good person to vote for in terms of their self-interest. And, you know, voters who otherwise would vote for a Republican because that's the way they are, uh, all of a sudden say, no, no I'm not going to do that. I mean, I, there was a governor's race that I did uh, in Illinois for Pat Quinn, and he was supposed to lose. And as is often the case in Illinois elections, you can win a statewide race in Illinois winning only one county, otherwise known, of course, as Cook County. If you win Cook County, you can lose the entire rest of the state. Margins matter, but you can lose and still get elected. In Quinn's case, we were up against a Republican, a perfectly okay Republican named Brady, who'd been in the legislature. We knew from research that, you know, like many Republican legislators, he was totally uh, anything the NRA wanted, he voted for. And that as a uh, member of the legislature, he had voted against a ban on selling guns to convicted spousal abusers and child abusers. And he had voted against a ban on guns in schools. I mean, literally, guns in schools. And in the last week or so, I just went on the air and said, you may not know this, but this is how he voted. And in the collar counties, as they're known in Illinois, all of a sudden the collar counties, Quinn didn't win them, but all of a sudden, Brady was not winning them to the degree he needed to to win the election. And uh, we won. What do you think was the equivalent in 2020 in reaching out to that demographic? I'm not entirely sure. I mean, I think that Joe Biden as a persona is a person that people like. If I'm a suburban college-educated woman or man, uh, Joe Biden doesn't seem like a threat. They were able to use socialism as a you know a thing in in Florida that seemingly, although we should research that more, uh, turned off uh, Latino voters. His persona was such that people felt comfortable, you know, voting for him. And we talk about demographic changes in the suburbs, and that's true. But I think that it was basically that. He seems to have, you know, in addition to you, a lot of old hands, a lot of people around him that have been around him a long time. And to what extent is that helpful? And what extent do you need new people? Did the campaign sort of reflect his true feelings about how to campaign and versus advisors? Do you have a sense of that? Obviously, the campaign manager was new. I think she did an incredible job. And I think that that was critical. Um, I think that, you know, the Biden team needed someone who really had experience in difficult races around the country, and she did. And I think she motivated and energized the apparatus uh, to do that and was very smart about it. There were new people in terms of the battleground states. Jennifer Ritter. Um, who's the daughter of an old, old friend of mine, Rick Ritter, was in charge of the battleground states, and she did an incredible job. So there were those. 
the definition of a great president and a great executive is to they they delegate and they trust people and they surround themselves with people who they're not you know afraid of or you know feel superior to or inferior to it, it really is a matter of that and we know that in businesses also true in presidents and governors all the executive offices joe biden has a history of being a legislator a u.s senator and the job of a legislator is to express opinions. You vote yes or you vote no in favor of things and against things. And sometimes you get things done in an executive sort of way by passing some sort of legislation. But executives have to make those decisions. And over the years of my doing this, I've seen governors, for example, get elected to the U.S. Senate and be miserable because all of a sudden they're not able to just issue an order and get things done. One governor once expressed this to me by saying that governors are not used to being summoned by bells, as U.S. senators are for a vote. And they often are, aren't terribly successful. Joe Biden, I think, one of the things that I'm fascinated by right now is that a lot of the people who have been with him for a very long time are government people. Um, I'm a campaign person. I mean, I, I think that one of the things that I'm writing about in my book is that there is a difference between people who are good at government and people who are good at campaigns. I often think of James Carville when he had just elected Bill Clinton, president of the United States, and people went to him and said, well, gee, are you going to be chief of staff? Or are you going to be in the West Wing? And James, to his credit, bless him, said, I wouldn't want to be governed by any White House that had James Carville. <laughs> and I think, you know, he was making his usual James Carville joke, but it's kind of true. I mean, if you told me I was going to be in the West Wing, I'd, I'd uh, shoot myself. I, I, I don't want to be behind a desk. And I very rarely have ever, you know, participated in the government of people I elect. I elect them and they do a good job and they, you know, have good government people. And a lot of the traits of a good government uh, is, you know, different from campaigns. Now, look at the transition. The transition is really telling. The Biden campaign has done an extraordinary job. Probably the best thing they've done is just straight ahead. They probably, in some ways, have done a better transition to date than any previous transition. When you look at the people whom he brings into the White House and into the various agencies and departments. These are people he's worked with for 20, 30 years. Tony Blinken has been, ever since he was a very young man, a person on Joe Biden's team, either in the Senate office, on the Foreign Relations Committee, in the White House, on the vice presidential staff, and then Obama's staff. They know each other really, really well. And that's true for so many of these appointments and the whole dynamic of it. You know, as a, the easy contrast, of course, is Trump, who had no experience in government and would pick people he never had met before to be Secretary of Defense or, you know, Secretary of the Treasury, et cetera. These people that they're choosing during this transition are people who have been with Joe Biden or been aware of Joe Biden. One of the things that he would talk about uh, in terms of foreign relations is that here's a man who was elected U.S. Senator when he was 30 years old. He was elected when he was 29, but took office 30 because of the constitutional requirement. And he has known the heads of government today when they were junior people in their governments. He's, he's been aware of them as a chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, as he would travel, as he would meet with governments around the world. And the relationships he has with those are significant. I think we're going to see some, you know, benefit to that too. But also, I think people where you're certainly aware, you know, that Ted Kaufman was put in charge of the transition long before the election. 
And Ted Kaufman was Joe Biden's chief of staff, his AA, on the election in 1972, took office in 1973, until 1995. I mean, there's no person closer to Joe Biden than Ted Kaufman. And, you know, as we all know, Ted Kaufman succeeded him as a U.S. senator when Joe was elected vice president. And Ted Kaufman being in charge, I mean, it's amazing. <laughs> like, Ted's one of the smartest people about government and about people and judgment about people that I know. I'm sure he was already considering what would happen in a transition, you know, months before the election. And so all of a sudden, the Biden campaign is moving along really, really well in the transition. And I give a lot of credit to Joe Biden, a lot of credit to Ted Kaufman. Well, I think Ron Klain as chief of staff is getting similar response. Like people think he's made for this. I agree. And again, Ron Klain, as a fairly young lawyer after graduating law school and, and uh, clerking in the Supreme Court, it was on Joe Biden's staff. It wasn't just that he was chief of staff for uh, the entrance to the vice president's office when they were elected in 2008. He and Joe Biden have known each other for decades. Ron Klain is one, of course, we all know very, very, very bright. He also knows government. He's been in government for decades. And he also, to me, fits a definition of what the presidential chief of staff should be. West Wing is, you know, the, the favorite show of all political people. And I always said that, you know, the most important character in the West Wing was not uh, President Bartlett, but Leo, the chief of staff. Everything revolved around Leo, including the president, in terms of the plots and everything else. And Leo was my definition of a really great chief of staff. He did what the president needed to do. He was a close personal friend of the president, but he was also able to say no to the president or speak out if he disagreed. But finally, if he you know, was given an order, he took care of it. And the staff in the West Wing adored Leo. We've taken a bullet for Leo, and yet also would never want Leo to be angry at them. There are lots of plots in various episodes where somebody's made a mistake and Leo's unhappy. And you can almost see the sweat break out on their forehead. Ron Klain is a very smart, very fair, positive. I've never seen anybody smile as much as they, all the newspapers and, and press have had to search for pictures of Ron Klain when he's not smiling because they, they're showing him with you know a determined look on his face. If you look uh, at most of the photos I've ever seen of Ron Klain, he has a big grin on his face. He's happy doing what he's doing. He has a great family. Uh, he has an incredible wife. He is built for this. I mean, I, I think he's as close to Leo. And another example of that, someone asked me who I thought was the most effective president in the last 20, 30 years. And I said, well, that's easy. And he said, what's that? And I said, James Baker. You know, James Baker was the definition before Ron Klain of a great chief of staff to Ronald Reagan. And, you know, Ronald Reagan would say, I want this done. And James Baker would, by God, do everything he could to make it happen. And I think that that was really important. You know, that quote about uh, Franklin Roosevelt that he had, uh, I don't know, something like a third class intellect, but a first class temperament. <laughs> which made him a good fit for the presidency. Where would you put Biden in terms of those kind of characteristics? Well, I don't think that FDR probably was a third rate. Might have be argued he was a second rate, but I, I, he clearly inspired not just the American public, but he inspired his the people around him, and he turned them loose. The other thing that was, I think, great about FDR certainly in the first administration or two, was that if something wasn't working, he just went, okay, it's not working. Let's abandon that and let's try something else. He always was able to be self-examining in terms of that. And I think that that was part of why 
his presidency was effective. I see that in Joe Biden. He inspires people. I mean, we talked about how he's known these people for decades. Well, that doesn't happen unless there is something going on with the dynamic there. They know he respects them. They know he listens to them. And they know and respect him. Um, And so I think there's some of that, which I think we're seeing in the transition. You know, whenever anyone would ask me why, we needed Joe Biden even before he got the nomination. I said, well, because he is the one person who can bring people together and and really, you know, say, okay, we're going to get this done, whether it's the corona crisis or foreign relations or anything or the incredible difficulties inheriting with the economy. This is a team that is going to really I sound so partisan in terms of Joe Biden, but I've seen it happen. He really inspires people because he is going to listen and he does issue orders and they want to, you know, be effective for him. There are definitely people that feel that way about him. I think there is yet a skepticism among young people about him, about whether he's sufficiently progressive, whether he's sufficiently exciting. I think that probably may dissipate some with the work that he's done working with Sanders and Warren during the campaign on the platform and some of the appointments, but it's probably something that is an ongoing thing to manage. What's your thoughts about that? If there's one thing that I found disappointing in the early part of the Biden campaign was sort of the feeling expressed by some people that we were never going to get the young people so we could just, you know, kind of write them off, which I disagreed with. And I attended a rally, a, a, a speaking event, it wasn't a rally, at the University of Buffalo. And it was in the, this gigantic arena, the basketball arena, just held thousands and thousands of people. And because it was at the university and it was a university event, Students were given, you know, free tickets to go to this event. There was a mixture of all kinds of people in the arena, but it was, lar- you know, largely young people. They went nuts over him. They, you know, they clearly worshipped this guy in terms of their his effect on them and their wanting to believe that Joe Biden it was going to make things better, get things okay. I think we make a mistake. And when we talk about policy versus, again, feelings and emotional connection, and I think that there's a very good chance as president that young people are going to say, yes, I really like him. I mean, this whole myth that he is somehow conservative or only in the middle, I always say to people, here's a guy as vice president who, when questioned about gay marriage, same-sex marriage, said the only criteria for who you marry ought to be who you love. And he caught hell for that. And at that time, Hillary Clinton was not in favor of same-sex marriage. She was tap-dancing it. The president, Obama, was not, you know, had, in fact, part of the controversy was that Joe Biden had gone ahead of the president. And that's the kind of spontaneity and, you know, progressive, hell, that was incredibly progressive and controversial. But the way he did it, all of a sudden made people say, yeah, that's right. That ought to be the criteria. I was involved with lots of campaigns in terms of, you know, legalizing same-sex marriage around the country. And it just swept. And I've seen that kind of enthusiasm in Joe Biden over the years. And it's infectious. And as I say, I saw it in the arena that that night. Uh, I think young people will have a feeling about Joe Biden that is going to, you know, be far more important than policy, though policy is going to be important. They're going to see things happening. They want somebody to believe that they've got a future. Uh, And in contrast to Donald Trump, they're going to have a, a president that they really enjoy 
seeing and listening to. And I think that's going to turn it around. You know, I think things like Kerry in charge of climate also is going to help. One of the things that's going to be different, like George W. Bush, Barack Obama, after they became ex-presidents, kind of made a mostly a policy of staying out of politics till campaigns. This president is already talking about maybe running in 2024, certainly doesn't seem to be too likely to shut up, to stop tweeting. And he's got a daughter-in-law thinking about running for Senate, and he's got ambitious other offspring. How do you see the post-loss Trump uh, effect affecting Biden? Um, I think the the people like Ron Klain and others around the president and the president himself uh, are going to be smart enough to not take the bait. As I said, there's this phenomenon of Donald Trump saying things just so he can engage you. Uh, and it's never a good idea to engage with Donald Trump. They've been really not doing that in the transition. There's been like visibly non-freaking out going on. Yeah, exactly. I think that that's one of the things that I find really heartening. It's a relief after the craziness. Exactly. And even during the campaign, they really didn't react. I think the voters did. And that's, as I say, was one of the problems. And the press. Well, on the press, of course, you know. Although less than last time, but yeah, you're right. Yeah, I, you know, I think less than last time. But again, it, it's even, you know, one of the things I found remarkable, I am, uh, again, somewhat infamous as being a television producer, director, consultant who doesn't watch television because I find it awful. And I, I know how to do what I do and I think sometimes my stuff looks different than everybody else's because I don't watch television. But of course, during the, you know, from election day on, I was like everyone else. I was watching CNN and MSNBC and nonstop. And finally, I was so stressed out, I turned it off for 24 hours. And the feeling of relief was instantaneous and sustained. And I, I wrote about it and then I counseled people. I said, no, it, it is their job, MSNBC and CNN, to build an audience and keep that audience. And they are going to yell at you every night constantly uh, about how things are really dire and horrible and rotten and bad. And just because you'll stay tuned to them. And I, I love the, the Biden transition and in some ways, even the campaign, was not falling into that trap. And I think that that's part of what the goal ought to be in terms of a transition. It's not only a good political tactic, because all government is politics to some extent, but it's also a good tactic in terms of turning the country around and, you know, gathering support. Often, you know, in an election, the winner has sort of this honeymoon of, oh, you know, a big victory, hooray, you know, for us. I think Joe Biden's going to earn it step by step, and he's already doing it in the transition. And people are kind of going, oh, my goodness, what's going to happen? Oh, gee, I like that, you know, that decision, that cabinet, you know, post. Yeah, you know, John Kerry, I mean, there are probably a thousand people who know more about climate change than John Kerry, right? No, John Kerry is committed to that, is very, feels very strongly about that. But the reason John Kerry is remarkable in terms of that is Joe Biden and John Kerry, again, have known each other for decades. They respect each other. And by appointing John Kerry to that position, Joe Biden sends the signal, this is really important. I'm going to appoint former presidential candidate, former secretary of state, former U.S. senator, to be in charge of this. The symbolism of that is almost as important, and one assumes John Kerry is going to appoint people who are really, really expert at it. You're going to have an ex-president who is not behaving well and will not behave well as he leaves office, as he is no longer president, 
you know, a year from now even. I think one of the best things that could possibly happen to Joe Biden would be if Donald Trump were the candidate for president, whether Joe Biden runs for re-election or not. Donald Trump will recede. Um, I think his family will recede. That would be nice. Yes, it would. (laughs) Um, And, you know, I, I don't think anybody has quite figured out the sort of legal ramifications of an ex-president who can be indicted uh, on various crimes. That can't be pretty. It could be very ugly. I was talking to the guy who runs a group called the White House Transition Project yesterday, and one of the things he said about Biden that struck me was he said, politicians live for the kind of moment that we have, which is a pandemic, a imminent potential collapse in the economy, all of these overlapping crises, that gives them a chance to really lead. Do you think that that rings true or not? I think most politicians don't want crises where they can fail. (laughs) 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 I'm not exactly sure that I agree with that. Um, Meaning that Yes. They, they, well, you know, the FDRs are made, right, by the response to the Great Depression, you know, or the you know, World War II. Or, right. Yeah. That had a lot to do with his personality and the way he led. Um, you know, all we have to fear is fear itself. And the sort of people adored him in those first years. They looked to him as God, I mean, in the fireside chats, and he engaged people. And he always had that damn FDR smile. I mean, we've never had a president who had a smile like FDR again. And again, I... I still had a 35% who hated him. Yeah, right. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, and that's fine. And, well, I was raised in a Republican family. I I had a candidate hire me one time for a race. I, in my pitch, I had told him, you know, sort of my biography and I, that I'd been raised by Republicans and that I'd gone to Georgetown. And after he hired me, he said, Joe, do you want to know why I hired you? I said, yeah, I guess. Not really, but yeah, okay. And he said, well, you're the Republicans' worst nightmare. And I said, why is that? He said, well, think about it. Raised by Republicans and trained by Jesuits. I said, yeah, that's pretty scary. You know, I can do it. <laughs> My grandfather was a presidential elector, now that we're talking about elector. Um, and as a Republican, he had to vote as an elector for FDR. And my father always joked that, you know, that was really hard for him. But <laughs> as a result, I have a medallion with FDR's likeness on it from his electoral college thing. That's pretty cool. <laughs> it's very cool. But uh, yes, FDR reveled in the chance that big problems make for great solutions and great leadership. And I think that Joe Biden feels that. I mean, one of the worst things about the pandemic is that I have never, in all my years of 750 candidates and 50 years of doing this, seen a candidate who has such a personal effect one-on-one. He wants to be close to people. He wants to, you know put his hand on their shoulders and talk to them and listen to them. And the effect, the magical effect that happens with that is amazing. And he wasn't able to do that throughout the election. He just couldn't do that, obviously. I think that as the coronavirus recedes, we're going to see more of that. He enjoys doing what he does. I don't think I've ever seen anybody, of course, I didn't know FDR, uh, but, you know, who so enjoys the interaction in a crisis with people he trusts, but also with voters. Uh, I think we're going to see that. I think he welcomes the challenge. But I think it's, it's less in terms of because he'll go down in history as a great president. He, if he goes down in history as a great president, it'll be because he was, not because he you know tried to manipulate it that way. Is there something I should have asked you that I didn't? I don't think so. You've asked really good questions, as always, Nathaniel. As I say, I'm, I'm filled with you know ideas because I'm writing this book. Part of it 
is trying to examine, you know, what went on in 2020, but also how some of it could be predicted. And we talked about that a lot, I think. When do you think you'll have the book done? And when do you think we might be able to read it? Um, oh, about 10 years from now, as near as I can think of the progress I'm making. I hope to have it uh, done and maybe published uh, with, within the next year. Well, I will look forward to that. Do you know a title yet? No. If you have any ideas, let me know. I'm not sure that authors have that much control over titles. They're usually the publisher, but probably have a fight over it. Do you have the publisher? Is that all lined up? Yeah, it's lined up, but I have to. They sworn me to confidentiality about it so far, so I, I can't say it. But and they've been very patient with me. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes those things have to percolate a little bit. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, they do. It's like in a campaign. Mm-hmm. One of the first things that always happens in a campaign is the candidate and the, will say, "Well, what's the theme of this campaign?" And I always know where they're going, so I always, you know, say, well, the theme of this campaign should be winning. That's that's the theme. And they say, no, 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 no. And I, I go, oh, you mean slogan. No, we don't like the word slogan, so we call it a theme. I, I said, the slogan will happen as I start to write scripts and as the, you know, great slogans, you know, happen organically, I know it sounds crazy, but they do. One of the great slogans recent was something as simple as change and hope. Hope and change, yeah. Well, it wasn't trying to be anything more than to elicit a response that people wanted hope and they wanted change. And that, by the way, is one of the fascinating things in terms of examining the phenomenon of people who voted for Obama and voted for Trump because they wanted change so desperately and so emphatically. And I don't mean the usual cliches about the Trump base. I mean, you know, people who really thought, okay, I don't like this guy, Trump, et cetera, et cetera, but by God, I do believe he's going to clean out the swamp or he's going to change things and he's not beholden uh, to Washington. I was checking out uh, groceries at, or having them checked out at the local Safeway yesterday. I got into a conversation with the man behind the counter, and he was pretty upset about all the people that he knows that are going to be evicted shortly as the CDC eviction hold expires, I guess. And he wasn't expecting help. He was thinking the federal government bailed out rich people when the coronavirus hit and that that is what they care about. I was really hoping that we could prove him wrong, but worried that it's it's really hard to drive change to the broad swath of people. I mean, it's already been a cliche to write about this. Joe Biden's one of the first presidents to enter office without control of the U.S. Senate. Very unlike FDR, no landslide in the Congress, yeah. No, and that's a whole other, you know, problem that I don't think was a problem of the Joe Biden campaign, but it's a problem of the Democratic establishment in Washington, the federalization of campaign tactics. But, Do you think it was a tactical problem? Or, I mean, it feels to me more like, I don't know, a Trump phenomenon that he polarized and he got out his people. Well, the, the Republican turnout that we talked about really did have an effect, and there's no doubt about that. Yep. And and so how do you, especially the way states are cut up and the Senate represents, you know, populations unequally and the House is gerrymandered, it's very, very tilted against Democrats. It's difficult, but we yeah. should not... Oh, I don't know. I'm about to say something that, you know, we should not have lost all of those U.S. Senate races. Um, We should not have lost as many congressional races. And, you know, I talked about the 2002 Republican turnout, and not enough has been written about this. 
was one of the only off-year elections where the president's party gained seats in the Senate and House. And that was because, again, I think Republicans are really good at the well, there was also that post-9-11 rallying around the president and national security and, yeah. and anti-terrorism timing. No, that clearly had an effect, and that had to be factored in. Maybe it had the biggest effect. But I also know that they really did. Yeah, they, they made a difference. They made, you know, they said, okay, we're going to do this. I entered politics in one of the worst landslide losses a Democrat has ever experienced with George McGovern. We only won one state. The electoral strategy of George McGovern is not to be replicated. Um, and yet, in 1972, uh, a young man named Joe Biden was elected in Delaware. Delaware is not exactly a liberal state. Iowa elected a Democratic senator. Going down the ballot, there, there there should have been a landslide with Nixon. There wasn't, really. You know, it was a historic landslide. I think that the Democratic Party, and this is a significant part of my book, has gotten away from uh, allowing House and Senate candidates to really be on their own. There's too much control out of Washington and too much that everything is starting to look alike. My generation of Democratic operatives largely resulted from the McGovern campaign. I mean, most of the people I know in my age and even some younger um, were in the McGovern campaign. And we really were excited about that campaign. And all of a sudden, we <laughs> on election day, we got you know devastated and some people dropped out of the process, understandably, and some of us went, well, damn, we really enjoyed this. Let's see if we can figure out how to win, because <laughs> we don't like losing. Losing's not good. And an entire generation grew up as sort of guerrilla warriors trying to figure out how we could win elections when elections we weren't supposed to win. I think that that's gone a little bit by the wayside, and the DCCC back in the 80s and 90s really was a powerful influence in terms of helping campaigns. Now they sort of dictate campaigns to, you know, the House races. And I think we've lost some of that, and I hope we get it back. If you're good at government, part of the, you have to be patient. You have to be willing to compromise. You have to be, you say, okay, we're not going to win this one, we'll win it eventually. Um, and that's not the trait you can do to win campaigns. You cannot delay a decision. You have to be a little bit crazy, quite honestly. And you have to, you know, just, you know, figure out how to win and just go right at it. Um, and the people who are really, really great at campaigns are usually not very good at government. As I said, I mean, the James Carville effect. It's going to be very, potentially very hard to hold the house, which would completely change the way he could govern if we lose it. Um, and there's no way we should lose it. I, that would just be so... We can't lose it if we if we keep behaving the way we are. Yes. Yeah. Well, we'll see how the world looks. Um, Joe, it's been just an honor to talk to you again. Uh, oh, thank you. Is, is there anything else you want to say? No, I really appreciate it. I'm, now that I'm semi-retired, if not retired, um, to, you know watch this happen. I, I'm so happy for the Bidens and what a remarkable family. I, the other thing that I pe people haven't quite noticed yet, I guess this would be something else I'd say, but is Jill Biden is going to be the most amazing first lady. I, she, her personality, her, her intelligence and emotional commitment, you know, so many First ladies, understandably, and one has to sympathize with them, you know, aren't particularly comfortable with all of a sudden, you know, being in the spotlight uh, and try to carve out a separate, you know, thing that is more private. Jill Biden and Joe Biden are such partners. I love the idea that she is going to keep teaching. You be the first first lady to actually have an independent job outside of the White House, outside of the government. There's this great story 
one day when she was teaching her class at the community college in uh, Arlington, one of the students raised his hand and said, uh, Dr. Biden, uh, I don't know. It, it suddenly occurred to me, are, are you related to the vice president? She said yes, and then continued on with her lecture. And the guy, for some reason, didn't do a follow-up question. But, uh, yeah, <laughs> about her. And, and she really is, you know, I mean, I don't know about prejudice, but I think she's one of the most genuine people I've ever met. And Well, it strikes me yeah. as a step up from Melania. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, uh, but a really engaged first lady. And, and I think we'll see such, I don't think we're even aware of the depression we may have been <laughs> suffering in terms of looking at the White House of the presidency and the people around them and you know, the first lady, et cetera, as being just this on, and the, and the children, and just being this ongoing soap opera of, oh my God, you know. It's going to be a relief to have normal people there. Yeah, I agree. Thank you, Joe. Thanks a lot. That was Joe Slade White of Joe Slade White and Company. He's at joesladewhite.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.